What's a sign that you're in the wrong vocation? I've been dreading this question. In fact, I wrote notes for the Q&A time. And the first one was that. Let, let me say, first of all, I'm going to deal with this next week. You're working. Um, sometimes I've been talking about work in a slippery way. In an ambiguous way, there's a difference between your vocation and your job. All of us have meant at any one time many vocations. Only one of them might be your job. As a parent, I have a vocation to parent. I have a vocation as a child, as a citizen. Your work is just one facet of your vocation. Think about how people choose their career in today's society. I think the two primary criteria people utilize for career choice are, well, what do you think it is? Money. Where can I make, where can, how can I make a living? And what's the other one? What you can actually do, right? <laughs> like, I mean, the amount of um, mathematical knowledge required to be a theoretical physicist is nowhere within my range of capabilities. So even if I knew I could make a good living at it, that would have been ruled out when I went to the career counselor. I think the two primary criteria today people use for career choice are money and abilities. But the two, the two primary criteria need to be who are you and where are you? What abilities do you have and what are the needs of society in your place? Money needs to be in the car, but if it ever, when it gets in the driver's seat, it wreaks all kinds of havoc. I'm going to deal with that much more next week. Um, I don't think personal fulfillment, satisfaction, advancement is a primary criteria. I mean, for most people in most of history and many of the people in the world today, you don't get to choose. Your choice of work is determined by your family's socioeconomic location. I think because we have so many choices, we think personal satisfaction gets in the driver's seat. It doesn't. It's a part of it. But sometimes your culture needs of you things that aren't incredibly satisfying. See, what is the definition of work? To use your gifts and abilities to lovingly and graciously and generously serve God and your neighbor. That's the definition of work from the Christian perspective. Now, most jobs, some people have jobs that are profoundly, deeply, mainly fulfilling. And some people have jobs that are profoundly, deeply, and mainly unfulfilling. Most people's jobs is somewhere in the middle of that continuum. I think what we need to get people to do is to discern very clearly who they are. And that takes a lot of work and a long time. And the problem is we have to make career choices before we even know who we are. That's why most people in a, in a society that you can make choices change careers. Because there's an evolving sense of self. And there's changing needs. Again, I think there's a lot... I think these, this outline I've given helps us to answer that question, and I, I look to unpacking it more next week. Another question or comment? No, that's right. I think one of the fundamental commitments of a Christian view of the human 
is becoming. Is that there's never a moment where it's sealed. That we could have experiences. We have latent potentialities that we only discover later. And needs can change. This is one of the luxuries of living in a society that doesn't have a a caste system. Is that we can respond. Somebody else, another question or comment. So Mike said, he, Mike, Mike is a professor at a university that will remain nameless, and he, he said <laughs> that sometimes in, in, in the university setting, we challenge young people to go out and change the world. And he's asking, how does that set them up to not be able to experience the mundane? And it's not just the university. I think even far worse than the universities are the churches with all of their talk about changing culture and changing the world. Um, I think that talk and that language is a product of American, of the American personality. And um, I think it's really dehumanizing. I mean, it's written into our myths, right? Where the lone individual rides in and saves the day. Very infrequently can a lone individual make any changes. A couple of weeks ago, Mike, you asked the question, how do we discover the brokenness in our job? And I think this gets back at it. First of all, I would say our calling is not to change the world. As a Christian, I would say if God wants to do that, he has a few every couple of generations, and that's his choice. And I think the desire to do that is more hubris and arrogance than it is good intentions. It makes people who have itchy feet. And again, I go back to all of these quotes like Martin Luther, God milks cows through the hands of his handmaids. I don't think we should try to change the world. I think that we should be faithful to our moment and allow God to make of that what he does. Um, if not, I think you burn out, you treat people as a means to an end, and you become a jerk. Because everybody gets sacrificed on the altar of your grandiose schemes. You also forget the truly social component of society. I do think we need to work for change. We need to look at our moment in our place and ask what is the change that needs to be made what are my gifts and abilities how can I link up with that and how can I live an ordinary life yeah there's a fascinating book by a uh, sociologist at the University of Virginia to change the world the subtitle is the tragedy the irony and the promise Or maybe it's just tragedy and irony of American Christianity today. This whole notion of changing the world. Yeah. There's more. So um, I recommend to you a fascinating book by a philosopher, PhD in political philosophy, who didn't like working as that, so he opened a motorcycle shop. 
and he's a motorcycle mechanic. His name's Matthew Crawford, and he wrote a book, Shop Class of Soulcraft, an inquiry into the value of work. And he eviscerates the elevation of white-collar work over blue-collar work. And he reveals how our society is devolving because of our inability to appreciate the work of the hand. And I would say absolutely, Paula, that um, she asked if, if we work in jobs um, that don't work with our hands, if that's detrimental to the human, it's very dangerous because our society rewards jobs that skim off the top of the work of others, right? That call out your margins from other people's labors. That dehumanizes the worker and the, the person you're culling. I do think it takes both in a society, but the value system is really messed up. It's funny, you know, if you go to a group of white-collar people and you were to ask them if your child could not have a white-collar job because he didn't have the particular intellectual makeup for it, would you feel bad for your child? I think most of them would say yes. And so we call manual labor menial labor. But the funny thing is what we've really done in our culture is we've just hidden all the manual labor. Right? You open up the hood of a car today, you can't even see. Right? It's got everything covered up. It's, we hide all of the manual labor behind these pretty little packages. And it's just a way of patting ourselves on the back for our non-manual labor. I mean, you try to get a product now that you can actually fix instead of throwing it away. Yeah, I think there's lots of problems along that line. Coming from a person whose day-to-day job works in the intangible. I think that every vocation requires a spirituality appropriate to that vocation. And if, so, if a philosopher tries to adopt the spirituality, well, if a housewife tries to adopt the spirituality of a pastor, the housewife is going to continually feel guilty and frustrated. Every vocation has a grain, not only of the way the vocation works, but of the way you need to function as a spiritual being within that vocation. And so I do think you can have a white-collar job, a job that works in in intangibles, but the crying need is a spirituality appropriate to it so that you can resist the idols and the dehumanization that comes with that job. And so what we need, and this goes back to a question Mike asked several weeks ago, how do we work in our spheres? What what we all deeply need is to get together with other workers in our sphere in order to answer these sorts of questions. How do I stay truly human as a professor? What's an appropriate, what's what's a spirituality that can actually nurture my life as a human being so that I can become more truly human and more truly myself? as a school teacher. And one of the problems in our churches is pastors typically present their type of spirituality appropriate to their job to people who can't do that. So pastors have a spirituality that's very close to what we would think of as cloistered monks. Most people can't practice that kind of spirituality. And they shouldn't. I'm reading a set of historical novels right now set in medieval England about a hunchback lawyer. 
And um, one day, this uh, carpenter walks into his shop and his son is kneeling in prayer. And the father, he's an apprentice to his father, and the father says to his son, there's a right time for that and a wrong time, and this is the wrong time. Now, if you walk into my office, I better be praying often. But if on my knees, that's my job. Now, most pastors have forgotten that, I would think, in our society where pastoring has been reduced to leadership. But if I walk into a doctor's office and most of his time is spent in prayer, that's inappropriate. Your first work is to your work. So one of the problems is that we need to develop spirituality appropriate to our particular jobs. He said, we live in a crazy predicament where many of the honorable skills can no longer support a livelihood, a family. I, I think that untangling that very serious issue, we would need to talk more about the difference between vocation and job. For me, a good example of that is the artist. If you know someone who's truly an artist, most of them can't support themselves through that vocation. So I think our jobs don't always line up with our vocations. In most of the world, you don't get that luxury of trying to make them line up anyway. So that's one issue. We do have a fundamental responsibility to support ourselves. That passage I read out of Ephesians, you've got to do the kind of honest work that not only pays your bills, but that also gives you the ability to bless other people. That comes before your desires and your gifts and abilities. That is a human responsibility to serve his neighbor and your neighbor first, if you're married, is your wife and children and, to, and the people who live near you, and to serve God. So what do you do when your gifts and abilities and skills and passions can't earn a living? You earn a living however you can. That's one thing. Secondly, it's interesting, I think an article was written in U.S. News & World Report about eight years ago, one of the most certain paths to a good living is through a trade in America today. I, I was, uh, about six months ago, I was in Washington, D.C. with a friend of mine who's a doctor. His plumber makes more per hour than he does. So, I mean, I'm not, you know, I, I do think that the work of a tradesman is an honorable work that people do pay well for. Um, so he said he grew up dairy farming and 50 years ago a father could say to his son, there's a good line of work, you can make a living. Not so much now. So... We all have to creatively, if we do have the privilege of looking at our gifts and abilities and looking at the needs of our community and, and the skills we were raised being taught, our job is to look at the needs and our skills and to find where they meet. It might not be dairy farming particularly, but there's a real renaissance of the small farmer in America today. There are exciting ways. You know, my grandfather got pushed off the farm he was, his, his father built a huge house on farming, local farming, prior to 1950. My grandfather's house is about one-fifth the size of his father's house doing the same job. And then 
within a few years, my grandfather had to go and deliver butane because a small farmer could no longer make it. This was in all the changes in the 50s and the subsidizing and the agro-farming industry. Wonderful work is being done where we're having a revival that it is possible to work with land and animals and support a family. And it might be that the particular way it played out has to change. Now, the danger in this is I'm not a farmer, and so I'm speaking into a field that's way out of my area of expertise. I think the real need is for farmers to get together and to say, how do we make a living in a way that contributes to the good of society and uses our gifts and abilities and passions? And that's a question farmers need to answer and not the government. Just like in every sphere, we've got to get together within that sphere to figure out what's broken in it and how to fix it. So I wrote three sets of notes for the Q&A. And the third set is on the issue of excellence and quality. Because I think there's great idolatry on this issue in America today. I do think that if you can't do a job well, that's a good hint. You shouldn't be doing it. But there's a lot of other factors. Everybody has parts of their jobs that you're, you're not the best at, that you've got to achieve a minimum standard of sufficiency at. And different parts of my job, it's up to me to know what's worth, what do I need to work harder at, and what can I tolerate getting by at. And that really requires in every job, right? My dad... Um, and I've been doing, well, my dad's been doing this renovation work in my house, and I've been his lackey. Um, but dad and I were painting trim in a room the other day, and it was time to eat, and I was painting this window frame area, and, and he came over to help me. And I was, I had started before him, and I was three quarters of the way down one side. He beat me going all around the window, doing the other three sides. Now, Part of the deal is, I don't know how to tell in that situation what is worth taking more time to do, right? So my perfectionist tendencies that led me to do a PhD ruined me in that moment, right? Not to mention the fact Dad's painted 9,000 more window frames than I have. Um, and then there's just native abilities. I do think native abilities matter. This is the definition of work, using your gifts and abilities, the, the issue of objective standards. Part of the problem with a lot of our jobs is that the objective standards no longer exist. They're not objective. They're at the whim of our managers, and that's very frustrating. I do think it's your job that on your job you identify the standards that are intrinsic to the task. And good work is work that is true to those standards. I think I said that at one point in my lecture. In um, that book I told you about, Shop Classes Soulcraft, Matthew Crawford, in the beginning he does all these lovely little um, declensions or caveats. And he says, I'm not a craftsman. A craftsman is this guy who makes the perfect perfect mortise joint and then has some sort of spiritual experience beholding the beauty of his work he says I'm a tradesman I've figured out how to make a living at my job right and a tradesman is a guy who can achieve that level of standard that's necessary 
but it's not the level of a Japanese sword maker. And most tradesmen, in order to make their product affordable to the common man, cannot always pursue that level of excellence of the craftsman. And, so, so, and I think there's really important ways of thinking about that. So it goes back to me, to my definition of work, that it's the service of the neighbor. A bad table does not serve my neighbor. And so if I do a bad job at my job, I'm ultimately not serving my neighbor well. A good example is the waiting industry, service industry. If your waiter is only there for the paycheck, it's a problem. I think the problem with there's a lot of self-deception when it comes to work and people think they can do something that they can't do and they need people to open their eyes to that. 